And the people it's going to impact most are the people that I'm trying to do social justice organizing for. You know, I'm trying to help queer people survive and thrive. And I'm trying to help women survive and thrive and, and racial minorities. And if our world is on fire, there's nothing we can do. Yes. You know, that's going to impact every single person. And then on top of that, the people who I was trying to do activism with and, and for, those are the people who are going to be most hurt by climate change because those right. are the people who already, you know, can't access insurance when their house right. hit, gets hit by a hurricane or they don't right. rent. So they're just never going to be able to get right. back on their feet or they live in areas in, in poor neighborhoods that don't have shade trees. And mm. so when there's a heat wave, their neighborhood is 10 degrees hotter than anywhere else. And so they're the ones who are really going to be suffering. So Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather. And in this episode, I am joined by author Elizabeth Weinberg to discuss her book, Unsettling, Surviving Extinction Together. Elizabeth and I discuss the multiple meanings of her book's title, the nature-culture dichotomy, social justice, queerness and liminal spaces, and gentrification and colonization. Also, please forgive the audio distortion and spots, though I don't think it's too bad. And please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Elizabeth Weinberg is a queer essayist and science communicator. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Washington, and her writing has appeared in The Rumpus, The Toast, American Wild Magazine, Seven Seas Magazine, and other publications. She lives and writes in the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Tongva and Keech, also known as Los Angeles, with her spouse, Leslie, and their dog, Pigeon. She is author of the forthcoming book, Unsettling, Surviving Extinction Together. Elizabeth, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you. And congratulations on your book, Unsettling, Surviving Extinction Together. This is your first publication, your first book, right? That's correct. Oh, very good. Well, you know, I found it to be beautifully written and incredibly engaging and thought provoking. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about this. Thank you. I'm very excited that it's coming out into the world and, and people are getting to read it. All of the, the feedback from folks is really exciting to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't, I can't imagine anyone not liking it. It's just an amazing book. And it, it really was. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So I thought that I would begin by asking you about the title, Unsettling. I find the title really provocative because there's a number of ways of thinking about unsettling, how unsettling could be understood. And so I wanted to ask you, what do you mean by unsettling? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean a number of different things, as you point out. Okay. I think there are even meanings that I haven't yet thought of. But the book at its heart is about thinking of climate change from a different perspective. So thinking about its roots in white supremacy and colonialism and looking at queerness as a, as a way out, so to speak. And right. so, first of all, dealing with climate change requires us to not continue with our settler ways. So it's, it's a literal let's maybe not be settlers in the right. same way that we have been for the past four or 500 years. And, you know, 
that's also not an easy thing. It's it's not sort of a snap the fingers and suddenly we're not settlers anymore. It's it's reframing our worldview and that can be emotionally unsettling. And then there's sort of a third meaning that I see that is in a sense of uh, sort of unsettled, not yet settled, not yet finished, mm -hmm. that this current form of our culture, I think it's easy to think of the way that we live now as the only way we're going to live. We are, we are currently in a system of capitalism that works a certain way, and that's just how it's going to be. And I think that that it behooves us to think of our culture and our way of being as as not finished, as as something that we can continue changing, and so that it's it's unsettled in that way. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I like that the unfinished. And I had a list here of some ways that I was thinking of unsettled or unsettling. I'd and love to hear we'll, those. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to this because I, you know, I also looked up in the dictionary just to see if there were any others, but it was pretty consistent with what I had. And I liked that in the dictionary, it was unsettled, but your title is unsettling. And we'll get to that, the verb aspect of it, I think. Great. Um, yeah, because there's that's lots important. I can say on that. Yeah. But yeah, so some of the things I had was unsettling. I had disturbing because yes. I think, and I think that was perfect because this climate catastrophe, this emergency is quite disturbing, <laughs> I think. I had uncertain in the sense of also changeable. You know, that yes. something is unsettled. We haven't come to an agreement yet. Right. And likewise, undecided. And then I also had, and this one was, and the first thing that came to mind actually was unsettling, was settling in that project of colonization. Mm -hmm. And so I saw it as speaking to the decolonization process. Absolutely. And I think there's also a sense of... Um, you settle for something that's not quite good enough. Yeah. yeah okay, and yeah. so to, to, to unsettle is to say, no, actually we can do better. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And then the final thing, and this is the one that I got from the dictionary and it was again, more about unsettled versus unsettling, but it's a debt that is not paid. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I liked it too. And I thought <laughs> that is so perfect for the situation that we're in. Yes, because we're absolutely, our, our, our debts are coming coming home for us right now. Yeah. In a very real and tangible way. So, oh, I'm going to hold on to that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was brilliant. And, uh, you know, again, I thought the title was incredibly provocative. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is it's grounded in queerness. Uh, now, yes. I don't know if it's right to say that it's grounded in queer theory. I don't know that it's wrong to say that, but I was wondering if you could speak to that because just like with the title, there's a lot of different ways that I think this, that you unpack this in the book. So I, I want to turn it to you to discuss queerness in the environment, because it's something I think that most people don't see connections with. Yeah. And that, that total disjuncture is, was actually the starting point for me because growing up sort of on the one hand, I was very outdoorsy. I went hiking with my dad and my brothers all the time. I went to backpacking camp. I was happiest and most at home in the woods on a mountain, you know, with my feet in a creek, where, wherever it was that I could be outdoors and not necessarily sort of like between four walls. And I also knew I was queer as I was, you know, becoming, as I was a teenager and growing up. And that was both exciting and scary in its own way. But those two things, the, the outdoors and, and nature and queerness, on the other hand, were always very separate in my mind. I had my queer friends 
and I had my outdoorsy friends. I'd go hiking with my straight friends and then I would, you know, hang out with my queer friends afterwards. And I started to wonder, like, well, what if I put these things together? What if I said, okay, I know that climate change is going to be most impactful of people uh, to, on people in the margins, right? So poor people, people of color, indigenous people, also queer folks. We're sort of already at this baseline position of more vulnerable. And so I wanted to know what climate change and queerness had to do with one another. But I didn't just want to look at it in a way of like, oh, poor us queer people, we're going to be so damaged by climate change. But I wanted to know, like, what do we, what do we bring here? How can queerness help me better understand the stakes of climate change and the impacts of climate change? And how can I actually look at queerness as a way to say, let's do something different. Let's do something different and find a way out of climate change. Right. Yeah. You know, I did my doctorate in essentially environmental ethics. And the only time that I can remember that queerness came up and, and I think it's brilliant, but it was in terms of activism. And it was mm -hmm. looking at, and you do talk about this a little bit about the AIDS crisis and ACT UP. And we looked at how the LGBTQ community at that time mobilized and they became like citizen scientists, you know, because they had to, they had to learn the language. And, but you go way beyond that in the book. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And I, I think that, I mean, learning about ACT UP on so many levels was formative for me. It was the first time that I'd really seen a activism. It was the first time I'd felt super connected to one. And it also connected me to the sense of community and the sense of grief. Because I, you know, growing up as a, as a queer kid, like, you know, there's something missing. There are a lot of things missing. But one of the things that, that's really missing is, is the, sort of the generation ahead of me that we lost so many people. Right. And the people who survived the AIDS crisis are carrying the grief of the people that they lost. And so I had this sense of just community grief and that really for me paralleled a sense of grief that I felt for climate change. So those were things that I wanted to explore in the book. Yeah, yeah. And well, I think maybe at the end, if I don't forget, I wanna come back to this idea of grief. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the things that other ways that you address queerness in the book, the one that I really like is this idea of liminality. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the the liminal and queerness and its relationship to climate change and the environment. The the liminal is probably my favorite space of, mm -hmm. of all. I think, you know, as a as a queer person, I feel kind of in the in-between because I'm, you know, I'm not straight, but I have this community. And like I was saying, I have this queer community, but I have this outdoor community and I have this science community. And I've got, I feel like I have feet in mm -hmm many different places. And I like that because I get to learn a lot and I get to meet a lot of neat people, but it can be uncomfortable because you can feel out of place as the queer person in the outdoor community or the outdoorsy person in the, you know, as in the queer community. Yeah. Um, and I also think that, and, and that liminality, I think creates a lot of possibilities because it lets you see what, what could be, it lets you see the possibilities. You're not just so sunk into one worldview or one viewpoint. And similarly, ecologically speaking, I think the liminal is just such a beautiful space. I, I talk in the book about ecotones, which yes. are the place where you basically have two different ecosystems meeting one another. So the coastline is an eco ecotone and the place at the edge of a wildfire burn is an mm -hmm. ecotone. 
And those are places where actually you see some of the most biodiversity because there's more habitat and there's more diversity in habitat. And so, so animals can, can find different places. They can find refuge in the trees. They can find food in the burn zone. And, and that liminal space is, is one of opportunities. And I think we embracing those liminal spaces, I think is really important for actually responding to climate change. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that it is relevant. And you also discussed this, that we have this tendency to make a distinction between nature and culture. Yeah. And it seems to me that, and I don't know, maybe I'm incorrect, maybe it's not liminal, but we're always in nature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I have a knee-jerk response against pretty much every binary that anyone ever puts in right. front of me. And <laughs> nature and culture is, is definitely yeah. one of them. I think that binaries tend to be very much culturally constructed. They're very mm -hmm. fake. They're often used to justify an us versus them power structure. Yeah. And and the idea of wilderness or the idea of nature is is mm. really one a really good example of that. There there was no such thing as nature in mm. North America until settlers showed up. Right. 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 And the, it seems like the liminality is a direct challenge to the binaries yes. because it's that space in between. Right. It's, it's what if, what if not both, you know, yeah, why, right. why can't it be a little bit of all of these things? Yeah. Why do we have to say, oh no, when we're in the city, we're completely in this cultural space. Well, there's nature in my backyard. There's, right. you know, sometimes nature in my kitchen when there are less. Yeah. <laughs> right. So right. why, why, and there's, there's culture in nature as well. Right. You know, right. different pods of whales have different dialects. There's, mm. you know, examples of tool use in a lot of different animal groups. And so let's let's break down some of those barriers and, and see what we can learn from having more of a spectrum. Yeah. And I think that this binary, this distinction is really at the heart of the climate catastrophe that we find ourselves in, isn't it? Yes, because I think the root, as far as I'm concerned, the root of climate change is settler colonialism. And that I think is really just a project of binaries. People, you know, Judeo-Christian traditions begin with God giving humans dominion over animals and saying like, there's, there's humans and then there's animals. And then settlers really continued this tradition. They said, okay, well, there was the doctrine of discovery, which is a papal bull. And that said, great, you can, any, any lands that aren't already owned by Christians, those are wilderness and you can take them. Yeah. Uh, then and and that doctrine is still being used in court cases mm. now. It is it, it is not a thing of the past. It was used in a court case I think as recently as 2005. And so when settlers came to this continent, they didn't see the kind of agriculture they were used to in, in Europe. So they're like, this is wilderness. Mm. But it had actually been tended very very carefully for millennia by humans. And so it was all a justification of a land grab based on this binary of nature and culture. Mm. And that land grab is the root of climate change because that land grab has made extraction possible. It has made just out of control capitalism and economic gains that don't bear in mind what the actual carrying capacity of this planet is and what the, the resources that we have and how we can keep them going for future generations. So it all comes back to that binary. Yeah. And I think that it's just, it's kind of a fallacy, a logical fallacy in some ways to think that there is any kind of pristine wilderness. I think that humanity has 
it's everywhere. We're everywhere in a sense. The effects of us are everywhere. Literally everywhere. There was a study that came out a couple of years ago that showed that Antarctica aside, humans have impacted 97% of all land on Earth. Wow. Wow. And have transformed it in some way. And I think even if you were to look at Antarctica, it would be a decent amount of that through through pollutants. Right, right. But yeah, we're we're everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. the places that we deem wilderness are a fabrication that yeah. we decided, well, we're gonna put that aside how it's supposed yeah. to be, but it was right. never that way before settlers came there. Right. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that we often forget that, you know, like our national parks, you know, Yosemite and whatnot, there were people who were living there. Yeah. When John Muir first moved or, or lived in Yosemite, he built a cabin and he was just going uh, off eloquently about how much he loved the landscape. And he said, it, it seems like no one, had, this is, I, I'm bastardizing the quote. He was like, it, se it seems that no feet have, have touched this place. No one's been here before. And just a couple years before there had been a war, I put in, in quotes, basically a genocide to kick the indigenous people off of that land. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I know this is a little bit outside of the book, but since we're talking about it, I thought I would ask, and I think I probably already know the answer, but it seems to me that I know that there's a movement or at least a suggestion that these parks ought to be returned to yes. the indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a really great article in the Atlantic. Um, God, I'm blanking on the, the name of the author, but a, a couple of years ago, titled "Give the the Parks Back to the hmm. Back to Indigenous Peoples" or, or something along those lines. Right. And it basically is talking about the national parks as the the logical first point to a land back movement. Right. You give the land back to the indigenous peoples, to the tribes, let them man, and then go from there. Yeah. And I find it actually pretty, you know, unsettling that there is this kind of focus on spirituality in nature. And I, you know, and I'm guilty with that too. You know, you stick me out in the woods and I start communing, but, and I think that's important in some aspects and in developing an important relationship to the natural world, but yet we do this. And at the same time, you know, there's this exotic, I, I, I can't even say that word, so I'm not even going to try, stereotyping of Native Americans as being so grounded in nature and whatnot. And it's like, it just seems so paradoxical that we're going out into nature to have these spiritual experiences and holding up Native Americans as being inherently spiritual in their relationship to the land, but yet we slaughtered them and stole the land. <laughs> you are completely true and also it was david truer who wrote that okay. article so right, remember right, his right. name i'll just kind of mention this in terms of this nature and culture and this falsehood of wilderness being kind of untouched and you do note that we make this equation with aliveness and being untouched one of the places i i you're a hiker which i mm -hmm. appreciate and I hike every week and the LA area has some great hikes. And uh, I hike a trail that there used to be, I guess, back in the turn of the 20th century, like cabins and some people in the movie industry would go back there and there was a massive flood and wiped it out. But you can still see as you're hiking, there's like rebar and road, you know, so you're on the trail and then all of a sudden it's like this little bit of concrete and it turns out it's like a broken out bridge. Oh. And at first I was like, you know, 
no, this is, this is not wild. This is not wilderness. This is not pristine. But then I'm like, but wait a minute. This is a really good reminder that this distinction between nature and culture is completely artificial. Yeah, that's it's so true. And I, I, I have to catch myself too, because I will say to myself, sometimes, oh, I gotta go hiking. Like it's been too long. Um, I've just been walking around my neighborhood and I just like, I need some, some real outdoor space. And then I have to tell myself, I have been walking around that when I walk my dog, I am outdoors. It maybe feels a little different. Yeah. It doesn't have that same, you know, there's there's maybe not a a amazing view. Right. And maybe the air is a little smoggier, but I'm still outdoors. And if I slow down and if I actually notice what's around me, I can have a lot of that same experience that I would have on the trail. You know, I can be looking right. at plants. I can be mm-hmm. keeping an ear out for birds. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this idea that you've got to go to these, these unpeopled mm-hmm. places is one of the things that makes nature really inaccessible for a lot mm-hmm. of people because they think, oh, I've got to drive two hours. I have mm-hmm. to know how to take care of myself. I don't have the right clothing. I don't have the right gear. When really, you're, if you're outside, you're outside. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Even the, you know, like you said, even the plant growing, you know, the weed growing up in the cracks of the sidewalk, that's nature. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's sometimes nature. it's really cool nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So I wanted to ask you also, kind of sticking with um, this nature culture, you said that you had a realization that climate change is not just about the environment, but it's also about society. And that that realization changed the way you thought about the world. Yes. How so? So, yeah. So I was sort of your stereotypical hiker. I cared about trails. I cared about, you know, whether I was going to be able to go to a national park. But when I was in college, I had friends who were climate organizers. And this was in the early 2000s. Like, climate change, like maybe it'll be a problem in 50 years. It's, It's not pressing. It doesn't impact my hikes. It doesn't impact my daily daily life. Instead, I really need to be doing activism around queer community and making sure that we have rights and that we have access and can take care of our community and need to be doing feminist organizing and and racial justice organizing and the sort of of, of social activism that I think you think about when you think of social activism is, is thinking about people. And I hadn't really seen a a system I hadn't encountered like environmental justice. It just wasn't something that I had ever run into. I think because in some ways the outdoor community is so white and straight and, and often male. It's just, if you're, if you're in that community, environmental justice just doesn't really come up because it doesn't need to. And um, I was really lucky. I got to hang out with a bunch of people who were doing climate justice work. And I was freelancing and I was writing for actually two people, which is an organization here in LA. Yes, um, I know. I, was, I know them. I have a student who works for them, and he had the hat. And uh-huh. I pointed out, I'm like, "Oh, I like your hat. That's a good organization." He brought a hat for me. I should have. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so I used to do social media for them, and I was blogging yeah. for them and writing yeah. about drought mitigation uh, yeah. in LA while I was living on the East Coast. So, I was like, okay. let me tell you about your trees in the city yeah. I don't live in. Right. Um, but I was, I was starting to learn. Oh. Climate change, A, is not going to happen 50 years from now. It's going to happen right. like next month right, uh, right. or right now. Right. And the people it's going to impact most are the people that I'm trying to do social justice organizing for. You know, yeah. I'm trying to help queer people survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to help women survive and thrive and, and racial minorities. 
And if our world is on fire, there's nothing we can do. Yes. You know, that's going to impact every single person. And then on top of that, the people who I was trying to do activism with and, and for, those are the people who are going to be most hurt by climate change because those are the people who already, you know, can't access insurance when their house right. hit, gets hit by a hurricane or they don't right. rent. So they're just never going to be able to get right. back on their feet or they live in areas in, in poor neighborhoods that don't have shade trees. And mm. so when there's a heat wave, their neighborhood is 10 degrees hotter than anywhere else. And so they're the ones who are really gonna be suffering. And so climate justice and, and climate change becomes for me a really social issue. Mm. And yes, it's about how can we keep carbon to a certain level, but it's because it's th that is the goal to protect people and to help people thrive mm. and to, to help communities be strong going forward. Yeah. Thank you for everything you just said. I think that is so important. And I actually had this a quote out of the book where you wrote what you just said, queer rights, racial and gender equity, ending poverty. None of that matters as far if our world is underwater with us gasping at the surface for air. And it's it's true. And yeah. and I think that for me is why I, I hope more people will feel that climate change is a really pressing issue for them mm -hmm. and for their communities. And I think a lot of people are getting to that point. Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, and my bread and butter has been education. And, you know, I feel like I'm this, you know, prophet out in the wilderness because, you know, there's a movement towards social justice. And I think that's incredibly important. But just like you, I've made that same comment. I'm like, you know, you know, yeah, it's great to have these workshops on microaggressions and, you know, training in queer allyship, but none of that matters if the earth's on fire. It's true. And I, but I also don't think that diminishes the work that uh, activists are doing outside the climate movement. I think we need right. it. We need all kinds of activism yeah. to make this yeah. world better. Um, I think, you know, the trainings on microaggressions yeah. are really important. I think, yeah, yeah. you know, the, all of the work that's being done in, in these sort of like subsectors of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, radical liberal movements. I think they're all equally important. Mm. I just would love to see the mm. climate and environmental dimension coming in, right. in all of these movements. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, as an instructor, I've been in meetings where it's been, the focus is always on student success. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how are we training them to succeed in a radically changing world? Yeah. Wow. And I think relationships are a huge part of it. Relationship building. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah. when I, so I, when I lived in Portland, I, I just moved away from there a couple months ago, but I was part of the neighborhood emergency team system mm -hmm. there. And that basically is a group of people who are trained to be the first, first responders if there's mm -hmm. the catastrophic earthquake or if anything else comes up, right, it's, right. it's around the earthquake. And the idea is the people who are trained as first responders are really important, but it's going to take a while for them to get there. Right, right. And in the meantime, what really makes the difference is having relationships and knowing who your right. neighbors are and being able right. to help them and knowing, oh, the guy down the street uses an oxygen machine. We need to make sure he gets a generator right. and knowing, okay, this other family sometimes is, is food insecure. So let's all get together and, and get them groceries and building those relationships. That's what's going to really help us. It's right. not like plowing a bunch of money into capitalism. It's making yeah. sure that we on the local level are all supporting each other. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to kind of go back again to the, to the title, and this is mm -hmm. something we sort of alluded to where 
in the when I looked it up in the dictionary was unsettled. And the title of the book is unsettling, which is a I guess it's an adjective, but it can also be a verb. And you quoted a ecologist, and I hope I'm not slaughtering this. I want to be respectful. He's a Potawatomi. Potawatomi ecologist mm-hmm. and writer. Is it Robin Wall Kimmerer? That's Kimmerer? correct. Yep, that's okay. how you pronounce it. And he describes the Potawatomi. Potawatomi. Potawatomi language as one that views the natural world as inherently living, possessing agency and action. And it says that most things we think of as nouns in English are verbs in their language. And I liked that. I liked that a lot. And I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about that, about what, what, what are the implications of looking at the natural world as a verb? Yeah. So first of all, I'll just say Robin Wall Kimmerer is amazing. Her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is a really good starting point for people who are starting to think about environmental justice and and who want to start understanding some of the the settler roots in environmental and in the way we deal with the environment, the way we think of ecosystems. And when I read that, it kind of blew my mind to think about, oh, if you if you verb something if if you if you, something that is a a noun is just kind of there right a rock sitting over there or a river is you know it's over there doing its thing once it's a verb it has agency and that, that's sort of the way she describes it is once it has once it's a verb it's doing a thing it is it has decided to do the thing not necessarily in the sense of like the river now has a brain but rather the river might go somewhere else there might be a drought and the river's like no nah, not going to be there or you might pollute the area and the grass you depend on or the the crops you depend on aren't going to be there. And so it puts the agency not just with us, but also with the world, the the ecological world. And that means that we're not just acting upon it, but that it's sort of the, the world has a stake here too. And for me, it was really important to use the verb unsettling as a title rather than unsettled. Um, because I wanted to make sure that we weren't seeing it as an endpoint. You know, right. I wanted I wanted that momentum to keep going, and I wanted to make sure that we were thinking of it as we have agency here. You know, mm-hmm. we have to decide to act. I have an essay in in the book that talks about Marvel superheroes because I am a yes. nerd, and you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about that is I feel this great reliance on someone else coming in and fixing things. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm a writer. I'm a communicator. I tell people things. I help people people learn. And I think that's really important. My my partner is an engineer and they can actually build things. And that blows my mind. They're just they're doing equations and building a machine. And that machine is doing good things for the planet. And but it's still, even even knowing that they are a person doing that, it's really easy for me to think, ah, oh, someone else is gonna take care yeah. of this whole climate change yeah. thing. Right. And so having it as a, as a verb that gives us the agency is I think really important uh, for reminding us that. We have to, we have to act. We have to yeah. be our own heroes. Yeah. 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 And I, that's actually something else I had down because I was going to, you know, ask if I could geek out with you just for a minute Please. about Captain America, because you actually address him in terms of liminality again, uh, as being mm-hmm. a man out of time and the queerness of his relationship with Bucky. But you also, and this is what I wrote, you know, we have to be our own heroes. And like you, I, I was actually really surprised by how much I liked the character of Captain America. Um, And 
for me, what I really liked was the virtue aspect. And, and that's one of the things I do is I like to try to identify virtues that can be extended to the natural world. But maybe you can say a few words about Captain America and the how you kind of relate him to this vision of us becoming our own heroes. Yeah, I, I really like this idea of, of him being sort of fundamentally virtuous. I mean, yeah. Steve Rogers is a, is a fundamentally, fundamentally just good dude. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and I, I should hate him. He stands yeah. for like muscular dude energy. He's supporting the military, just doing all the things that I'm I'm not generally a big fan of. But I I came to the Avengers at a time where I kind of just needed something easy, and I mm. could I could watch some people just like kicking butt and saving the world. <laughs> and so seeing him do that, I think was was sort of my first entry point, and doing it in a way that was not like fundamentally very toxically masculine but in a way that you know he was he was recognizing injustice and acting upon it as opposed to just sort of being like I want to blow some stuff up and so that was really important to me and then this this liminality feeling I mean he's a person who in the movies at least just before World War II fought in World War II ended up cryogenically frozen essentially and then shows back up in our time and that's just like that is, if you start to think about it, it would be just a mind-blowing experience. It would be so disorienting. And because of it, I think it allows him to look at the way we're doing things, you know, the 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 place that capitalism has got and the role of the military and saying, like, wait a second, let's let's maybe not do that quite so much. In the same way that I kind of want to be looking at, at how we've done things with climate change and saying, well, let's let's backpedal a little, let's change some things. So there's that. And then there's also just the fact that there's so much clear subtext yeah there, and i yeah. i love it yeah 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 me too me too you also noted kind of going back to the verb idea you you even also say that or write that queerness is an act of becoming and so queerness yes. is a kind of verb as well Yes. So actually, I, think I have the quote here. So Jose Esteban Minos, who's a queer theorist, just wrote some really amazing things. And he has this, this quote that is, queerness is not yet here. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. And that, I think, if I could have another epigraph for the book, it would be that. Because I love this idea of potentiality. It's not necessarily, we're not there. We may never get there but we can always be striving to be more queer. And I think for me, we can always be striving to do better. There's this like yearning and desire and grasping inherent to it rather than just this sort of sit around and wait quality. And I, I like the potentiality instead of, I think hope gets used a lot with climate change. Mm -hmm. And hope for me is a, it always feels a little bit limited. Like it kind of mm -hmm. has this like, well, this wistful, maybe someone will fix things kind of thing. Right. Um, whereas that that potentiality and that yearning and that grasping for me, that has so much more power and so much more agency. Okay. And so, yeah, really that that, that concept is very much uh, touchstone for me. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Because when I have guests on to discuss the environment and the climate emergency, and I, I've been trying to avoid climate change because I just don't think that it encompasses the direness of this situation. Excellent point. Yes. Uh, but I, I will often ask guests as a kind of a final question, you know, do you have hope? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm not going to ask you that because you just commented on, on your ideas of hope. 
But are there, you know, you've got this potentiality that I think would feed a little bit of hope, but are, are there other characteristics or even to also use the phrase virtue again, that you think are going to be hopeful in resolving the situation or not even resolving, but moving forward in that potentiality? Yeah. I think the first one that comes to mind is empathy. Mm. I think we need to really start understanding each other and understanding the ecosystems that we live in as living, you know, agentic beings right. that that are are responding to what we are doing. And I think the, the number one thing that we can do to move in the right direction in this climate crisis is, is to have empathy for each other and to start really being willing to build relationships and, and build relationships that are built on curiosity and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that focusing on the neighbors is, you know, what you were talking about earlier. I think mm -hmm. that is absolutely crucial, yes. you know, and there's even a religious aspect to that, you know, love your neighbor. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, which is not to say that work at the, the higher, broader level right. is not right. important because it absolutely right. is. Yeah. But so much of the really good climate work that I'm seeing is at the local level and is, mm -hmm. you know, either led by indigenous communities or led by communities of color in cities. Mm -hmm. And it is based on what people need to see in their community on the ground where they are uh, and, right. and how they can help each other. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of neighborhoods, one of the things you wrote about that I think when I got to it, I'm like, okay, I want to speak to this person. But you were you were talking about gentrification mm -hmm. and you made this connection between gentrification and colonization. Yeah. And that's not something that I had thought about before. Yes. And it's something that I, I need to give great credit to Eulabis for, because when I read her essay, Notes from No Man's Land, or I think the essay might just be No Man's Land, that was the first time that I had come across that idea, and it completely blew my mind. I was living in Seattle, working on my MFA. It was, you know, the first time that I had lived in a city, not with, you know, my nuclear family that I grew up with, and I was living in an area that was sort of right on the line of the traditionally red line black majority neighborhood and right between that and the majority gay neighborhood, which is not a coincidence. Those two tend to, to go hand in hand. And I read that essay and she compares gentrification to basically making the worst mistakes of colonization and, and the pioneer life of, of trying to, of going to a place and saying like, ah, the people here don't matter. The people here don't exist. I'm just gonna, gonna live my life. And it was really, it was difficult for me to totally get comfortable with, right? Because my knee-jerk reaction was guilt. So I was like, I'm in grad school. Mm -hmm. This is the only place I can afford right. that's not out in the suburbs where I can, you know, mm -hmm. take it, I can take an easy bus to school. My, my partner at the time could get to work easily. We were in, you know, a walkable neighborhood. We were, we were where we wanted to be. But I also, while I was in that neighborhood, watched my entire block transform from a majority black, black block to majority white as basically people got priced out. Mm. And the neighborhood transformed into something that's like, you know, basically stereotypically what bougie white people like. You know, there's a yoga studio that popped up, mm. there's a coffee shop, all, all that good stuff. And, you know, I wasn't mad about it. 
<laughs> I liked the coffee shop. I liked the yoga studio. And so I had this just like, well, but this is where, like, this is the right place for me to be. It makes sense. But it's also true that I was a gentrifier in that situation. And I was coming in and my presence was helping drive up property prices, which was pricing out my black neighbors. Right. Uh, and that's, it's, it's, it's another land grab, the same way colonization is a land grab, the same way manifest destiny was a land grab. And so I think we have to recognize that there are very real overlaps and parallels. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I don't know, since you're kind of a newbie here in the Los Angeles area, I don't know if you're familiar with the reclamation of the Los Angeles River at all. Just a little bit, very bare bones from when I was working with three people. Yeah. Okay. The reason I mention it is because my partner grew up in Silver Lake Mm -hmm. And the reclamation is really close to where he grew up in. And, and, you know, on a surface level, I think it's awesome that they, you know, tore down the concrete that had covered the river. Right. But he is constantly complaining to me that what that has done. And I think this is a really interesting thing to look at. And I haven't thought about it too much in depth, but your book kind of started getting me thinking about this is he's complaining that since they have done this reclamation, that has launched further gentrification. For sure. Yeah. And so I you know, can't speak to that example because I'm not super right. familiar with it, but I think that that really points to why it's important that environmental justice projects always have communities at their heart so right. that when yeah. there is something like a reclamation of a river, the communities that live there are making sure that whatever is sort of the heart of their community is preserved. Yeah. So there is affordable yeah. housing right. so that there are still the cultural for them. Yeah. yeah it's, it's real easy to, to make something nicer. And then suddenly if you haven't yeah. thought about the bigger picture, people like me move in because yeah. I like the nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, his, his, one of his complaints is when he was growing up that, you know, one of the gangs was the Frogtown gang, I think is what they referred to it of. And now that's become like a logo. That yeah. reminds me, there was an area in Portland where it was a like old rundown property that had gotten completely overgrown and the city brought in a bunch of to clear it. And it was sort of this, you know, it was in very Portland. We have goats in the middle of you know, Southeast. Uh, <laughs> just uh -huh. away. But, you know, they were, they were doing that because this, this area had sort of been, had been left undeveloped for a while because it had had some, some poverty issues. And a couple of years later, luxury condos went in and they're called the goat blocks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, I, I don't remember where I heard this from, but it was whenever you see like a housing community that shows up, you know, that's called like, you know, the rivers or the glens or something, it's always naming what has been removed <laughs> or what was there originally. That yeah. is so real. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love our suburbs, right? Well, and that's something, you know, the suburbs are a little bit problematic and you do talk about this. And I was going to ask you since you're now in LA, but when you were writing a lot of it, I think you were still up in Portland and you were writing about how you wanted to get rid of your lawn. Yes. Um, have you been able to do that in LA? So I went here. So okay, unfortunately right. now I have great plans of, of asking my, my landlady if I can kind of like sneak some native plants yeah. in here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, although I am glad she, she has put in one of the more climate resilient or drought resilient yeah. kinds of grass. 
Yeah. 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 I rent too. And I would love nothing more than to kill the front lawn, but I don't think the owners would be very happy. Although I did kill the back lawn. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Yeah. The trend in LA of um, the AstroTurf lawn has really been striking to me. That's, I gotta say that's weird. It is. I just saw someone installing that. Yeah. And it's like, you know, there are native plants that can attract the pollinators and be so beneficial for the ecology of the area but let's put in fabricated green for yeah and there's there's stuff that you can put in that is not going to be high maintenance right that would have such huge impacts i was hearing a story recently about microforests that are being planted Mm. in griffith park and all i want to do is put a microforest in the backyard of this (laughs) house that i'm renting because they're like 10 foot by 10 foot forest plots you have to, they're all native plants. Mm. You irrigate them for two years and then they just do their thing and you just see a huge bump in biodiversity. And I would just love to see more of that throughout the city. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, a good place to do it. I, I, you know, I, I I tend to have some hope sometimes not so much, but I, I know that we're starting to run out of time here, but I did want to ask you about grief. And I have a passage here from the book that I want to read and then get a response from you about this. And I think there are a couple of things within this that we can discuss, but you wrote, we have to learn to grieve for this planet and everything we've done to let ourselves cry for the orcas and the sea lions and coyotes and the rivers and the mountains. And even through our tears, we have to learn to say that, yes, we have done these unspeakable things. And then we have to change. We have to see the beauty in this world and be willing to give up everything, our settler ways, our iPhones, our plane rides, our belief that it isn't worth trying to keep it alive. Yeah, I think one of the the biggest things I learned writing this book was just how much grief I carry with me. Yeah, You know, grief for my queer community and all that we lost in the AIDS crisis, all that trans folks are losing right now just it breaks my heart all the time and then of course with climate change too it's it's really it's so hard not to just get completely discouraged and just want to like you know pull a blanket over my head and give up but I think what matters is what we do with that grief and so I really see especially the second half of my book about really being about embracing the feelings that Mm. climate change brings up and, and finding a new ethic through our grief and, and figuring out what comes after. There's a, a quote, I think, not long after the passage you just read from, from Anna Bodkin, um, where she talks about our tendency to empathize and to align ourselves with the victim, yes, because yeah. which absolutely makes sense, because that's the person you want to feel for, right? And in any situation, it's, you, you don't want to empathize with the perpetrator. But also, we have to recognize that in climate change, particularly speaking as a white person, I am the perpetrator. Like, I am right. part of the problem here. And settlers and settlers, that's the problem. We are not the victim here. And so it's not just, it's not about guilt. I think it's really easy to, to start mm. thinking about climate change and just start wallowing in guilt. That's not productive. For me, what's productive is, is letting ourselves feel that, that grief because letting ourselves feel that grief means we've really let ourselves reckon with what's happening here. Right. Um, and then going from there yeah. and finding more feelings, finding more action. Yeah. 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 And I think that's really important. This idea of dealing with the grief and not feeling the guilt, you know, maybe acknowledging the role that we all play in this, Sure. but you know, we need 
we need healing and the healing, you know, acknowledging the grief and finding different ways of sharing it and moving on from it uh, and incorporating mm -hmm. it, I think, you know, be it in song or story or artwork, you know, that that's all, I think, crucial for, for humanity to survive and to make a better world for all earth communities. Yes, 100% agree. Yeah. But the other part of this is the quote that I read, you know, you say that we have to be willing to give up everything. Do you think we're going to be willing to give up everything? Or do you think we're going to be forced into it? <laughs> <laughs> this is where hope comes in. <laughs> I hope we're going to be willing to. Um, it's a big ask. Yeah. You know, I, I think there are, there are ways that we will be willing to change and there are ways that some among us will be willing to yeah. change. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, we are already at a point where climate change is, it, it, climate, the, climate, the climate crisis <laughs> is happening. You yeah. know, we have passed the point where we're going to keep this thing from happening. Things right. are not going to be great. Yeah. And it's up to us to figure out how not great it's going to be. Um, and how we can help people live the lives that they deserve to be able to live. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth on this, right? I, I believe that we as, as humans can get it together. But then I also see people who are the big climate polluters. Mm. I hope they'll change. You know, yeah. I, I, when I say that the people who are the big climate polluters, you know, it's, 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 Looks like us, but then I'm also thinking of like the people who have private jets and are flying everywhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I think it's also important to recognize that 71% of climate emissions are of carbon emissions are three companies. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And so, yes, we all need to be willing to give things up and to change things. But I think part of what needs to change is willingness to just let corporations do whatever they want to do. Right. Um, right and and a, rec a real reckoning with what capitalism is doing and saying like no you actually you yeah. do have to factor in the damage you're doing to the environment you can't just count that as an externality right right yeah and that i think that's really important you know and i think this is where it's going to be really difficult too is to address the economic um aspect in the sense of the uh economic system because you know there's th such this indoctrination of you know capitalism it's the only way and mm -hmm. you know and i i don't know if we are going to get rid of capitalism but it definitely needs to be modified absolutely yeah um naomi klein's this changes everything was a, yeah. a really good framing for me of yeah. understanding how capitalism really is at its heart, one of the, the major problems of the climate crisis and, and how it needs to transform. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's capitalism, and but then that has its roots in white supremacy and patriarchy. <laughs> yes, and colonization. It's all wrapped up in a nice yeah. bundle. Yeah. Uh, one of one of my dear friends refers to it as the cappy pappy or the capitalist patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's something I don't know that a lot of people quite understand that that the 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 root how how insidious this white supremacy is in the culture and in in nature and culture slash nature and <laughs> yeah yeah 
And I, I think it's it's easy to think that it's just, you know, white supremacy just shows up in overt racism, but right. it is really the bedrock of our economic and our social and our knowledge systems um, yeah. is this, this white supremacy that fostered the land grab that yeah. now produces these huge inequities, which is why, you know, you, you talk about, you ask about the, the title and what unsettling means. And I think really at its heart, unsettling needs to also mean land back. It yeah. needs to mean making sure that indigenous folks and indigenous cultures have sovereignty and have control over their land. Yeah. 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 And that's really important too, I think in terms of, you know, globally, there's this push for development. And I always wonder, you know, it's like, yes, I want, you know, the global South or however we want to refer to it to be able to develop, but it has to be on their terms. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think we, part of this really needs to be the end of this patriarchal notion that we, as the quote, developed world know better because we don't like we've, we've shown we really don't. We're we're making a mess of it. Oh yeah, we are. We definitely, definitely are. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I know that we're pretty much out of time, unfortunately. But let me ask you, what's next for you? Oh, great question. I mean, immediately next is is getting this book out into the world and and letting people see you know, unsettling right. surviving extinction together as a a real book which is just like so exciting for me and then from there i don't know i'm trying to figure that out i'm really interested in thinking about cities and and mm. cities as this locus of nature what it means yeah. to nature in a city yeah 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 i think that to just to add on to that that's something that uh, i've heard discussions about is that there's sometimes this tendency to think that cities are like the worst place to be uh, mm-hmm. in terms of climate change. But I've also heard the argument that they're actually probably some of the better places to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that yeah. would be really interesting. Yeah, I'm interested in in the animals that have managed to to live in these places and sort of what we can learn from them. Yeah. Um, basically, yeah. I'm just going to continue on with my obsession with coyotes. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I like coyotes. I didn't talk to you about the coyotes. Coyotes sometimes get a bum rap, I think. Um, they do, but they're one of the most amazing creatures. Yeah. Have you seen them in your neighborhood? Not yet. Yeah. Uh, one of my neighbors did. She was very scared for her cat. Oh, um, yeah. We had a conversation about that, but no, I, I keep hoping that I will see one. Yeah. I see them every now and then I go out and walk and every now and then, and I, you know, I live in Pasadena, but mm-hmm. you know, I've been walking and all of a sudden face to face with coyote and I've seen him trotting down the street and I, I'm always thrilled by it, but I know people who've had their you know, they're pets. <laughs> um, and it's like, well, yeah, but you know, it's part of being where part we're of are. living in a city and part yeah. of living in the world is living yeah. with other creatures. And I think, you yeah. know, coyotes are one of the most resilient species and they're, they're yeah. so amazing in that regard, the way that they just kind of keep on dealing with whatever horrible things we throw at them. Yeah. So I think, I think we have a lot to learn from them. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Coyote, you know, I know, mythically speaking, has often has lessons for us. Yes, so, that is yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Shows up in many cultures and many myths and many yeah. stories. Yeah, for sure. So Elizabeth, where can people go to find out more uh, about you and your work? 
Yes. My website is elizabeth-weinberg.com. You can find the book there. You can also find it, you know, wherever it is that you would like to buy your book on, buy books on on Bookshop or Amazon. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at EA Weinberg and would love to hear from folks there. All right. Wonderful. I will put the webpage and the show notes in the video description. And I will also put links for your book so that people can easily find it. And I highly, highly, highly recommend the book. It's, it's a really, like I said, it's a beautiful read. It's quite thought provoking. Thank you, Nick. And thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, thank you. I really appreciated your time and I appreciated the conversation and everything that you bring to healing, healing the world. Thank you. All right. And that's a wrap on episode 57 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or watch this on Spotify. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a moment to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. Also, if you think a friend or family member or coworker even would like this podcast, please share it with them. Right now, that is one of the best ways to help me with the podcast. I really would like to grow my audience. If you would like to support my work on Rebel Spirit Radio, I have a PayPal link set up if you would like to make a one-time donation. And yep, you can still be the very first person to do so. The first person who does make a donation on PayPal will receive a special call out if you're okay with that. And of course, you will have my undying gratitude. You can find the PayPal link in the show notes or video description. I'll also be launching a Patreon within the next few weeks, so keep tuned for updates on that. I have a lot of plans for Rebel Spirit beyond the Rebel Spirit Radio podcast. I Seriously, <laughs> I really would like to create more uh, content for the YouTube channel, including more book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. I'm also planning some live stream episodes. The first will be with returning guest, Dr. Sharon Kogan, where she will offer a Jungian analysis interpretation of dreams for participants. We're still working on scheduling this, but it'll probably be sometime in November, maybe even early December. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com. That way you'll be informed of all future events. Implementing all of this is going to take a lot of time and resources, so anything you could do to help would be greatly appreciated. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.